Well, so, as Joseph said the other day, I'm going to talk about uh, generosity, the practice of dana tonight, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. It makes me happy, mostly because I, I get to tell stories that make me happy, and that's fun. But to, to start, um, as we've said, as you know, many times the liberation, the freedom of heart and mind that the Buddha speaks of, the simplest way we've had of describing that being the mind, the heart of non-clinging. Or you could say, really all, as far as I can tell, my limited understanding, all of the teachings, all of the different ways of teaching that the Buddha offered were all about this. Nothing was extraneous just for the heck of it, because it was kind of interesting. And none of it was just, well, if you can't you know, liberate yourself, do this. All of the teachings tend towards purifying the habits of our heart and mind, tend towards transforming the habits from suffering, so-called unwholesome habits, to wholesome, the pure habits, to weakening the habits of greed, hatred, confusion in our mind, and feeding, strengthening the wholesome. And not only so that at some future moment, which is true, it's only the pure heart mind can see Nibbana, but what's even, I guess I couldn't say it's even better. I mean, what's better than seeing Nibbana? You can't just say that in Buddhism. (laughs) But what's accessible here and now, and what we learn, hopefully, and you're already seeing that many people to trust more and more, is to recognize how in a moment, just in a moment when your consciousness has cleared from being identified with aversion or confusion or wanting. In, like some, several people have given this example of noticing aversion in the mind and that shift, you know, that Tai Chi move to awareness of aversion is an averse, right? It sounds nice, but when you really experience it, there's a sense of, oh, there's, there's a happiness in that. Aversion still the object. And there's a happiness in that. And that is imp- not incredible bliss. You're dancing. Little kind of piece of happiness. If you're not looking so hard for the big bang, you'll notice. And this happiness, this joy almost, or calmness, is the happiness of the wholesome heart-mind, just a moment of it, the peace of the purified mind. So it, there's a saying, I don't, I don't really think it's a Buddhist saying, but there's no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. And that's really, I feel, in all of the different ways that the Buddha taught, is different ways of purifying our heart and mind, experiencing this... Um, happiness, joy, peace, here and now, as well as strengthening the habits so that that will continue in uh, our mind and heart stream in the future. And so being here on a meditation retreat, of course, our emphasis, duh, (laughs) is on meditation, on bhavana. But what's really... uh, it's t- it, I don't think in my first years of practice, of course, I didn't really understand this so much, and I'm still learning about it, that 
meditation bhavana, we, you know, it's like the most interesting. It's like if we get really deeply pure in our heart and mind, we'll understand, we'll see the truth. But it's not all about bhavana. All the different aspects of the way we live our life are equally purifying, ennobling, important. They're, they're, they all work together. And so the practice, the way of life, of, it's often called you know, generosity, sila, conscious conduct, moral conduct, bhavana, the word for mental cultivation, development, and all the different kinds of meditation, you know, all the different forms, have different techniques. They come from different angles, but they're still at their core have this um, about purifying the habits of mind. And so I just want to give that kind of framework from which I want to just share some of my own reflections about the, the habit, the way of life, the happiness of generosity. Yes, it's practice of it makes it sound too, you know, kind of, uh, I can't think of the word, but you know, dull having to do, automatic. But what um, I've really begun to imbibe kind of like by osmosis from spending time in, in cultures that are primarily Buddhist in Thailand and Burma um, is where not everyone's like walking around enlightened, of course. It's as messed up as anywhere but in different ways. And so uh, one aspect that I've really, like, I, I just feel in myself the more I spend time there is be- because the, the teachings of the Buddha are just more inculcated in the culture, both sometimes really with understanding and sometimes not, like anywhere, but generosity as a value, as a way of life, is it, just so through the culture with this sense of joy that uh, whenever I spend time in Thailand or lately Burma, can't help but pick it up, even if at first you don't quite notice what's going on. So generosity, you could say really that it's the foundational quality, the foundational ennobling quality at the heart of our awakening path, at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. so many, many times in the suttas when he begins to unfold his teachings to people, he begins with generosity, Uzondisila, and all for bringing in, brightening the heart and mind, purifying the heart and mind, even in the listening. It turns the mind and heart in a wholesome direction. And just on an intellectual level, you don't have to, it's not a surprise if you just think about generosity, it seems to me quite understandable that as a a practice, as something that we um, just continue to strengthen in the way that we relate to our lives, ourselves, our things, others, it, um, of course, is a counter for greed and possessiveness of objects, of time, of what views, whatever. It counters ill will. Interestingly enough, try giving something wholeheartedly to someone and feeling ill will for them at the same time. It doesn't work. When there's really a wholesome mind state, wholesome and unwholesome don't exist simultaneously. 
Uh, and of course, it counteracts self-cherishing, the sense of separation and alienation that comes when there's a sense of me holding on to whatever. The act of generosity of mind, speech, and body is an expression of non-separation. And it also, I find, strengthens that understanding and kind of feel it in different ways, the sense of our non-separation. And I found that uh, the more the mind just inclines to generosity, it also strengthens a sense of inner contentment. I mean, in a way, we can't give anything if there's not some sense of inner abundance, of inner non-clinging. I mean, that's clear. But also in the giving and in the, um, the kind of the circle of giving and receiving and joy and non-separation that comes from that, this, I find that the sense of inner contentment and needy is, is strengthened and the kind of neediness really uh, just weakens. It just, the happiness of generosity is so much more enticing than the unpleasantness of neediness that, you know, the mind starts to incline to the wholesome. So I don't know who figured it out. Because even though we say with awareness doesn't care, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, it turns out that the calaces are unpleasant and wholesome states are generally pleasant. So our job is not to cultivate more aversion and clinging to those, but it's a good situation that as the mind inclines more towards the wholesome states, there's much more inner happiness and peace. So generosity, it's great. I recommend it, practicing it. (laughs) The Buddha, as you know, um, you probably know, when he uh, had to set up his way of living with the monks and the nuns, and he was, of course, as you know, in India at that time, there were lots of different sects and probably lots of different uh, ascetic uh, men, more men than women. But still, the Buddha was setting up his own his own group, his own sasana of monks and nuns with his own rules. And this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, he's a great translator, uh, talking about, this is a quotation from the Buddha, describing how he was setting up. He set up his monks and nuns, how they would relate to laymen and women, all on the basis of generosity, the mutuality that comes from generosity. This is from the, the Buddha Bhikkhus. Householders, Brahmins, are very helpful to you. They provide you with the requisites of robes, alms, food, lodgings, and medicines in times of sickness. Those are the four requisites that nuns and monks are allowed and need to have. And you, bhikkhus, are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you teach them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end and you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and complete purity. Thus, monks, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. And as you probably know, he really set it up so that monks and nuns are not allowed to keep food overnight. Not only can they not eat after noon, but they can't keep food overnight, or bhikkhunis, now it's different now with nuns, but so the monks and nuns had to go out every day with their alms bowl, as in the story of Bahia last night, every day, eat the food that they get, and that's it. And then the next day again. 
So even though there's a great emphasis with the monks and nuns on meditation and seclusion, and here are these roots of trees, go meditate, they also couldn't completely isolate themselves from the lay people because there was this mutual support. And so the lay people were generous if they felt uh, inspired by faith. And the monks and nuns were generous in offering the Dhamma, not only through their lives, but through sharing in whatever way with any lay people who came. And he set it up so that you couldn't just live in isolation. It's because these four groups of people, uh, ordained women and men and lay women and men. And it said, even now, the tradition is that these four groups of people are necessary for this particular Buddhist sasana to stay alive. So we need all four. Anyway, so he set, he set it up that way. And in Buddhist countries, as I said, it still is there, especially with the monks. They still go out every day on alms round. They can't keep food. But the piece, again, that I mentioned before, that to me uh, has been a revelation, is the when you, a, a bit immersed in a, in a culture, and it's not just the monks and nuns and Buddhists, where Generosity is such a, a deeply ingrained way of being. It's such a, a value that there's so it, it, it soaks in by osmosis. But it's the the revelation to me is the incredible joy and happiness that's involved in all the not not all okay most of the acts of generosity in the giving and the receiving. And it's not only monks and nuns, it's lay people, it's really in the culture. And it's contagious. And this is like, uh, of course, I, I grew up, I mean, in this culture, people are very generous. I'm not saying only Buddhist countries are generous. Please don't get me wrong about that. It's just this where a lot of my learning of the, as, as a Buddhist practice and the joy of it comes. But of course, um, there's a, but there's a, a slight difference in a way, I mean, the way I grew up, sort of Christian, <laughs> more or less Christian, I would say. Um, and there's certainly a sense of, of love and compassion and sharing what one has, usually, usually with, and it's really well meant, but with, with people who are needy. Well, of course, you tend not to give to people who have more than you. Or, but for time or effort, whatever. But there could often be, at least the way I learned it, a, a slight sense of you know levels of a, a subtle superiority of giving. I mean, that's not always the case, but it could be. And um, one could feel good about it. Nothing wrong with feeling good about it. But the sense of real joy and dignity in it. Sometimes, I mean, I, I didn't really grow up with that sense. You know, more like even if I was giving, offering something to a homeless person, I would tend to feel more embarrassed or ashamed rather than a sense of like joy and dignity. And if the person receiving it accepted it in this really open, dignified way, that was a, like a wonderful gift, but it wasn't often happening that way. So when I first, um, the first, when I first began to get a sense of it, it was a long time ago when I was in Thailand as a nun in a forest uh, nunnery monastery. And there were just a, maybe a few little huts 
for the nuns, for the women to stay in. And so I had a little hut, and there was a head nun who was a young woman around 30, very strong practitioner. And in, in nunneries and monasteries in Thailand, people just show up and come. You could have like three nuns one day, and then one day 15 nuns could just show up the next day, and you have to find somewhere to put them. It's just like that. You know, it's not like we like, you know, advertise ahead of time. No, there's no room. You can't come. People just come. That's how it is. And so whenever there were more people than there were kutis, the first person to move was always the head nun. You know, she was like happy to get She'd go stay in this cave filled with bat guano. I'm not exaggerating. A pie, you know. And, and I mean, I think she liked it a little bit, you know, for the ascetic idea. But still, there was this great joyful generosity of moving out, you know. And I had just come from my early years on staff here where there's a sense of, you know, that's what we would call the room game, you know, what room would the staff people get to live in. And believe me, it doesn't work that the most senior person happily gives up their place to the most junior person who comes. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, it's all seniority and that's, we all accept that. So this sense of the most senior most happily, and I just kept noticing that over and over and over. And I was quite touched by it. And then quite some years later, when I, the first time I went to sit at a, a monastery, a meditation center in Burma, I didn't really know anyone there and you know, I was just doing my practice. And um, I was there for quite some weeks. And you know, you just, you're in your own world, you're getting yourself all settled. And finally, after however long, you manage to come out of your own, maybe you guys haven't yet, come out of your own world a little bit to kind of notice what's going on around. Like, do you notice how lovely the flowers are? That's somebody's generous metta heart, someone in particular, who, who made it so lovely. She could have just thrown a couple of daisies in there, but no, she made it really beautiful. And then she changes the water when it's funky, even though it's a drag for her, out of generosity. Well, noticing that, we can let it in. There's a joy in seeing that, in appreciating, you know, the generous, the small generous acts around. So I started to notice this in this uh, meditation center. For example, the way the, most of them are set up, you come in to eat, and we have a certain set seat at a table, about four or five women at a table, and the monks at other tables, and food would be put on the table. And there are young women who work there, not, not nuns, who come and, and work, and really they're hardly paid. Some of them aren't paid at all. They just volunteer their time, and they work like full, full, full week's work. And they're just kind of waiting, making sure there's food and all. And I started to notice that some of the meditator women, even nuns, like foreign nuns, um, incredibly demanding. Like asking them, well, I want some hot chilies. I want more salt. I want this. I want that. And, you know, with me, they're like, oh my God, you know, you're a nun, you know, cool. It. Aren't you supposed to be renunciate? And, you know, I had, uh, you know, quietly a little bit of an attitude. But I was just sitting there watching. And the women who are like working really hard, first they would try to meet they would go to a lot of trouble to try and meet each of these requests. They'd go out to the garden and come back so happy they could pick a few little fresh chilies. Happy, that's the key. They were like so happy to try and do whatever was asked, to try and offer that generosity. It felt really unfeigned because I was sitting watching it, you know, for weeks. And after a while, I think, well, which is better, sitting here grumpy and judging 
are kind of like opening to the joy of that heartfelt generosity about little things. I mean, it doesn't work really to think about I should be, you know, appreciating it. But it just starts to come in out of osmosis. You just start to notice it. And the wholesome qualities, if we're not completely covered in delusion at a moment, they're contagious. We feel them. They light us up, our heart and mind. It's really a gift just to sit there and watch the generosity of these young women. So that's when I first started to to get a sense of how uplifting that was, because I was having uh, a difficult time. Some of those times were difficult in my practice. And without having been told that, I just started to notice that when my mind was like in a dark funk, if I just did something like notice, oh, look at those flowers, that's somebody's generosity. It wasn't a false thing, but the generosity and the metta behind it would kind of uphold, it would bring some brightness, some faith into my mind and heart, you know, and that would give me the strength to keep going. So overall, the wholesomeness, the happiness of the wholesome mind is, it shows us that our happiness really is not at all dependent on external circumstances. But it doesn't mean we can't recognize our mutuality, our non-separation, and that's one of the great things about Sangha here. Of course, you're projecting, you don't really know what each other's feeling. But sometimes you just get a sense. Someone's walking by and they seem really mindful, or they seem, you just get this, this hit of happiness or metta from them. Great, don't go into big thinking about it. Let it touch you, you know, let it be contagious. We're not so separate. So that's when I first started to get a sense of it. And then, so now I'll just tell a a few stories about how the the mutuality of generosity is so imbued in the culture and how much, just, I just kept watching, I keep watching. I just have to think about being in Burma. And believe me, this is a place with incredible poverty, much of it government-induced, incredible oppression, lots of fear. So it's, you know, it's not like a paradise at all. And yet, there's so much um, joy of generosity and kindness, kind of generosity of heart and metta, in the culture, in so many, not everybody, but in so many people, that you just, I just start to think about it. I just start, and memories start popping up, and my heart just gets really kind of open and happy and generous. It's interesting. So just to give a couple of examples of seeing it, Mm. One time I was staying at this meditation center, and it was right after the big cyclone a few years ago, which is like a big hurricane, sort of like Katrina, and it had that even more of an effect of devastation on a whole, uh, whole area kind of in the southwest of Yangon, and Yangon itself. So we're staying in a, in a meditation center right outside of Yangon, and all around it is a you know, relatively poor village, and many of the houses, which are just little bamboo shacks, had been destroyed. And a lot of the crops had been destroyed, uh, both down in the Delta and in this area. So poor people were even a lot poorer. This was a time with that when the government, of course, didn't do anything and tried to st- actively stop other people from helping down in the Delta, not in Yangon, where the generosity of the average Burmese people was so manifest because so many Burmese would 
it would actually brook danger or uh, jailing by the government to get food together and somehow sneak down to the Delta on boats or whatever to pass it out. Just, you know, your normal person, any of us, but a lot of people because the government wasn't doing anything. So anyway, at this time, it was a few months after that, and um, some friends and I had gone to Burma, and other friends had known there was difficulties and had sent money with us to, you know, to try and share with people who needed it. And so the Sayadaw, the abbot of this monastery, said, why don't we buy a lot of rice and offer a big bag of rice to each household in this village, because that's the staple, and now it's so expensive. And he organized, we gave the money, and he organized the whole thing. He's a great organizer. So it's like to 800 households or something. And again, the way the generosity is done, you know, we would say, okay, everybody, bag of rice here, you know, come get it, bye. But it's done really face to face and with great dignity. So they, they, they brought in trucks of rice. There's this whole room piled with rice. And then the monks in the monastery who can't like offer money, but they offered their time and bagged all the rice, you know, in big bags. And then Saito came and got us. Uh, uh, me and my friend Westerners and said, you have to come and offer it. You know, you can't just like give the money and go away. That's got no heart in it. He didn't say it that way. He says, you have to stand here and each person that comes, you hand them the bag of rice. So this was like an all day affair. The bags of rice, we're talking 50 pound bags of rice. So it would take two of us, me and, and my friend Ryan were like, I could hardly lift the thing. And this little lady would come and we're going, you know. She takes the rice, throws it on her head and goes walking up. They all do. The women carry it on their heads, the men throw it on their shoulder. Some of the women, and I have photos, I'm not exaggerating, a kid in both arms, the rice on the head and they go off. But there's this face to face. So just that, it has a, a sense of dignity, a sense of um, immediacy to it. But it's also this cycle of the joy of generosity and the joy of receiving goes both ways. So this, of course, is the area where the monks go on their bindabat, their alms round every morning, and they go in the same little routine. So one of the monks, I'm only about 12 in this monastery, one of the monks, a friend of ours, a, a guy from Mexico, he told us the next day, he came back from the alms round the next morning, and he said, okay, we go the same round every day, and more or less the same people come out and offer us rice. And they're poor, so mostly they only offer rice. So it's pretty much always the same family, the same little ladies. So he said this next day, after this, this rice offering, so many more families came out and offered rice because they had a little bit enough extra that the first thing they did with it was offer it to the monks. And then they had, he said, there were a few places where the families brought out their little kids because they're like, you know, it, it goes down through the generations. So it was like a real treat for the little kids to be able to take a spoon of rice and put it in each monk's bowl and go on like that. And it was just, I don't know, so touching, the kind of the, the cycle of generosity and just so normal there in that culture. But the cycle of the happiness of generosity really runs from not only within that culture, but from any kind of giving, receiving. So example, um, again, uh, some other friends had a few years before, well, a few years at this time, they came and visited one of the nearby nunneries, which I'll describe the nuns in a minute. And then they went back and the next year they sent a check 
to offer to these nuns who were trying to, to build a decent enough building to live in. So the nuns, just to describe, there are many, many nunneries around this area, more since the cyclone. These like two or three or four nuns would move up from the delta because they couldn't live there anymore. And they somehow get a little tiny plot of land, and they build like these little, like plaited bamboo, like a woven wall, you know, of bamboo. You can make it in about three hours if you know how, and it lasts four or five months. And the floor is just like bamboo poles like this with big holes in between. And that's kind of common. So we, many nunneries like that. So this particular one was two sisters, and they had uh, some years ago come up from the Delta and were living and studying. Many nuns study um, Pali and Buddhism, and, and they had been studying for some years. They were about early 40s and a younger sister, late 30s. And then at some point, the monk, the Sayadaw, who was their teacher down in the Delta, said to them, oh, there's these 10 little girls. They're orphan little girls, and I can't take care of them anymore, so I'm sending them to you to take care of. Now, as it turned out, they told us later, they, they didn't have any way to take care of these little girls. They were living in a study monastery, and they are, their plans were that next year to go and meditate and to really dedicate the next few years to meditate, to do their practice. But instead, they got the news, here come 10 little girls. That, and many nuns take on little girls, orphans, or their parents are really poor, and they educate them, they clothe them, they feed them, they completely take care of them. You know? And that's what these two sisters did. So when we went to visit, they had found this little land, they built themselves this little crummy shack, and they were living there with 10 little girls. And they were describing, they were filled with light and going. They didn't tell us that they'd really wanted to go meditate for till quite some time later. We were talking through a friend who speaks Burmese. That's how we could get this. And they're just talking about how they felt so dedicated to giving these little girls the possibility of knowing what a good life is, what a life of virtue is, what a life of generosity is. They said, if they decide not to be nuns when they're old, fine, that's up to them but at least they'll know good values. They'll know how to live as a human being. Plus, they're rescued from the street. They're rescued from some kind of servitude. And they'd laugh about how if everything they have is on Donna, their food, and if they're given clothes, the head nun was saying, well, if someone gives me robes, that's wonderful. I can cut it up and make 15 little tiny robes. I mean, for these little cute girls and their little pink robes, they're very cute. And, and she was laughing, and uh, someone gives us a little money. We can buy 15 little sets of slippers, you know, and these little sets of slippers are lined up. And there was so much affection and so much dedication, and she was teaching them Polly in the morning, and they all get up and chant. And, and then at the end, it came out that really they had wanted to go off and meditate. So they just did a 180-degree turn for the next 10 years of their lives with joy, with so much lightness, and happiness, it was like really amazing to see. So anyway, when these friends gave the check and then when I came back in the next year and that I had some to California where the friends were and I had some photos of these nuns receiving the money. You put it in, you, you can't, you have to put it in piles and chop, you just like, <laughs> like huge piles of money worth not very much. So you, you put it on these trays. It's always face-to-face, -face, a very dignified offering. 
and there's chanting. If you offer, the nuns will all chant, monks too, a whole metta chant, a gratitude chant, a blessing chant. It's really very beautiful and formal. So there's photos of that. And then the next day we ran into the nun. She'd run out and they'd bought you know, concrete and bricks and she was coming back sitting in a truck filled with all the building supplies they just bought. So we could take a photo and show our friends. And when I showed him the photo, it was like the completion of the circle, you know, because they were so happy. I was just watching them. Oh, here's the photo. This is what we did. And their face just lit up with the happiness of generosity. So you're happy when you think about being generous, when you're doing it, and afterwards, reflecting on it. And I'll say later, the Buddha really talked about this as a wholesome act. It's really beautiful, quite catching. Uh, it's, as I said, it's really in the culture, it's not just, I'm, I'm mostly giving monks and nuns examples because that's where I've been hanging out. But um, just a simple example, last year, it's complicated with the money, bringing in money and changing it, it's just complicated. So um, last year, the way it worked out, came through a bank and a money changer, it's always the money changing is like pseudo black market, just put it that way. It's not like you just, now it's changing. But you, you didn't go in a bank and change money. You just, that, that didn't even exist. So a, a guy, a money changer would come with, and I'm not kidding, it's like huge mounds, huge mounds of these chot. And look at every single foreign bill. And if it's a little bit wrinkled or it has one red dot on it, they won't take it. So it takes hours. They're going through everything, you know. And so this is going on. And there, you know, it's like, it's not quite like a drug deal. It's a little, but you know, it's this little sleazy quality. It's not like, you know, the room is filled with light and davas, really. But you just, but it's also not like, I mean, it's what everyone does. We were doing, one time we were doing it right in the office in the middle of the monastery. I mean, it isn't secret. But anyway, so these guys are doing it, these young guys on their cell phones every two minutes, you know, and changing the money. And there was a little bit left. Uh, they didn't give us it all because there was a bank fee and we didn't know what it was. So the woman where we'd been doing it, who ran a B&B, who's very supportive, they're incredibly generous, that family, always supporting all different meditation centers, called us up and said, oh, well, there was $600 still left. Um, and someone gave a donation to bring it up to a thousand. Okay. Someone gave a donation to bring it up to a thousand. Well, who? We, we thought maybe another yogi, because a lot of meditators stayed at her B and B. So when we went to pick it up, she said, "No, nah, it was the money changer." The money changer heard you talking about that the money's going to nuns to build toilets and wells, and they gave four hundred dollars. Almost anonymously. I mean, it's really, it, that kind of thing happens all the time. And it's so touching, you know? Just the goodness in people that it just needs a little chance to come out. The other point I want to make, just as long as I'm in Burma, is seeing how beginning to experience the transformative effects of generous actions of mind, speech, and body on our own mind stream over time, how it really begins to transform and, and really bring us a, a deeper level of happiness than we knew. And I want to get another couple of examples. These are monks and nuns. But we went uh, this year, 
I was back at that meditation center, and one of the monks who lives there, this actually quite touches me, the monks who live there, there's maybe 10 of them. So now for four or five years, several of us have been going, and friends give money, and we just give it out to nuns and build wells and toilets and stuff. And the monks, rather than thinking, oh, it should go to monks, it shouldn't go to nuns, and you do run into that sometime, they're quite different. They've got out of their way to go and find people who need stuff, to identify people whose houses are falling down, to find nuns who are running schools for poor kids and help us go there and visit and see if we can help. It's really touching, these monks. So this one monk came and said, oh, you should go visit these two other monks over there. And they, they, they were interesting, these two monks. They had, um, one was about 40, one was about 35 years old. And they had only become monks recently, one seven years ago and one three years ago in, the, in their mid-30s. This is unusual because usually um, guys who are going to be monks become monks younger. And Sayadaws have usually been monks since they're like seven and stay monks a long time. Or they become monks for a rainy season just to do it and then stop. But these guys, one had been a captain in the military, the older one. And the other one had been a businessman. So we went to see them, and Upanyaloka, the monk who told us, said they're interesting because they became monks and they were living on this little plot of barren land near where we stay. It's just dusty, flat land. Didn't have a well, didn't have much of anything. And he said he went to see them, and you know they were newish monks, and just the two of them. So they didn't really have a senior monk teaching them. And he said they were kind of hanging out, and. They were monks, but they didn't really know what to do with themselves. <laughs> you know, and they had been there a while. And, they, and so Upanyaloka says, look, why don't you do something? Like, you guys both have an education. There's all these poor kids around. And the way school works in Burma, elementary and even high school, even if you can go to the government schools, which have a lot of fees and so many kids can't. But even if you can, you you don't learn enough to pass the exams, which everything's predicated on the exams. And so you, kids basically have to hire the teachers for tutoring in the evening. And the teachers, that's how they make enough money to live, because they're paid like nothing. And so poor kids, they, even they can barely scratch going to school, they can't afford to hire anyone for tutoring. So Upanyaloka said to these two monks, look, you have an education, you're just sitting around here, why don't you start tutoring? There's a lot of poor kids around. And so they had started doing that. And now maybe 100 kids came every evening to get tutoring. So we went over to see them. And it was like, it was really a great, a great teaching in uh, assumptions and also the happiness and the transformative quality of generosity. So you walk in and it's still, I mean, you don't really walk in, there's no inn, but it's just uh, like this barren, dusty land with a kind of a shelter, a, a lean-to. That's what a lot of places are. And we went in the afternoon and there really were a hundred kids there. And these two monks just kind of tutoring him and the older kids helping the younger kids. And it all felt very friendly and jovial. And the two monks were not impressive looking, <laughs> shall I say. Um, they just, I don't know, they just look kind of schlumpy. And uh, they had clearly been chewing betel nut all their life. If you've seen that, it's this you know, bit addictive thing. And if you, if you chew it for long, it dyes your mouth and your teeth red, and it rots your teeth, and you're always spitting this red. It's, you know, it's not really a happy sight. But it's very common. 
but you know, a good monk or nun. I mean, women chew it too, just as much, wouldn't chew betel nut. So these guys, you know, betel nut, just kind of standing there, and um, <laughs> u, u obasa and u wepola. But we started talking to them, and the younger one, the businessman, turned out what he'd been in business in was beer and liquor and stuff. That was his business. But he finally had to beg his parents when he was 33 to let him be a monk. So anyway, he starts talking to us, and they've been doing this teaching now for some time. And he was like born again in a good way. He said he felt like he'd wasted. He was so bright. He was so happy as he was saying this. And he said he felt like he wasted the first 33 years of his life. He said, I feel like, I'm, like I have a new life now. He said, he's, he said he's giving his energy and his life to helping others, to helping the children. And he said, really, it's like, it's like I have a new life. I want to be able to do some form of helping for the rest of my life. This is it, you know. And if, if it turns out there's nothing else to do here, I'll go somewhere else and help somewhere else. And he was just, you know, filled with happiness and joy from this, this helping others. It was just so touching. And for us also, one of us had a, quite a judgmental attitude toward monks. As soon as this person would see a monk with betel nut, it was like you know, a door slammed shut in her mind. And so this was really, really for all of us, like, oh yeah, maybe I have to drop that. You know, the, the purity of heart. And to see the transformation through simple acts of generosity. OK, one last story in that way about a nun who, a different nunnery nearby, and had been there a few years, and maybe 30 nuns living there, um, not particularly bringing up orphans or school, or not doing, you know, they study, but nothing in particular. And the head nun, Dawsumanachari, who seemed nice, she made good mohinga soup, but seemed a little bit depressive, maybe. And then she came the year before last, just after I'd left, but she talked to Daw Aryanyani, who speaks Burmese, and she knew that sometimes people funneled money through her and said, you know, I know there's a lot of, uh, there's a school that a nun started 10 minutes, 10 minutes drive away for poor kids who can't afford public school. And now 500 kids are going to that school. I'm not kidding. All on Donna. They have to raise money every month to pay the teachers, to feed the kids. Plus, the nuns have to live on Donna, too. Anyway, so this nun who came to see Aryanyani said, but that the little children around here have to walk half an hour, and in the rainy season, and all, it's too hard for them. So I want to start on my place, a, a school, for the really littlest ones. And she had a plot of land with two small buildings on it. And so you know, we kind of thought, oh, I don't know. Can she really get this together? But what the heck, you know, so offered what we could. And came back the next year, and she'd really done it. So first, they pulled down, they demolished the main building that the 30 nuns were living in, and they all move into this smaller building. That's all they have to live in. And they had the money to build like a really long like lean-to roof, hired several teachers, got blackboards, and then she got another company, a Burmese company, many Burmese companies support, to build another lean-to. And she had 110 little kids coming. And she'd hired really you know, good level, regular lay teachers, and so when she came, so we were really impressed. But the point is, then she came and was talking to us later that fall and describing it. And her demeanor, even I couldn't understand Burmese, but she was talking again through translate. Her demeanor was completely different. She was radiant. 
she was just like filled with light. She was so light and joyful. And what she was saying was that the year before, it was just eating at her. She couldn't sleep because she so wanted to start this school. It had just come to her. She had to do this. She didn't know how. She was so worried about it. But now, and I kind of wrote this, I'm not making it up, she said, now the worry's all gone. Before she couldn't sleep or eat, but now she's so happy because it's happening. She said, even though she has to work so hard to keep it going, to get the Donna, to keep the teachers, to take care of the kids, and they all live in this little building, she said, she's just so happy. She said, all of my energy is for the children and the school, and so my mind is calm and happy. And she looked like that. It's really, you know, quite transformative. And as the Buddha said, and the, the, the great story is through his um, disciple, Anattapindaka. I think someone mentioned, Anattapindaka was one of the Buddha's most generous disciples. He, and he came, when he first met the Buddha, he, was just, he just had so much faith in the Dharma, in the Buddha, that he just became filled with appreciation and generosity. And so right away, he offered the Jeta Grove, which many suttas that you read take place there. And this story of Anattapindaka is to show that the, the main aspect of generosity is not about what or how much. You know, we tend to look at result. Huh? But as with everything, it's the motivation. The heart of the generous act of mind, speech, or body is in the motivation that uh, the intention to offer time, material goods, freedom from whatever, you know, um, and the tuning into that, the non-clinging, and that's where the joy comes from, and that's what gives generosity its power. So Anattapindaka, one of the things he started doing was every day he would invite like all the monks from the Sangha in the area, it's like 500 monks, which means a lot. That's Andy Olensky says, when it says 500, it means a lot. Every day and feed them with a great meal every day. So King Pasinati of that area, the king, who was also a disciple of the Buddha, he heard about Anattapindaka's generosity and he wanted to imitate him or probably do better than him. He said, he can do it, I can do it, you know. So he uh, decided he wanted to uh, give alms and food to 500 monks every day. So he started doing that as well. But then one day, he said as he was on his way to, to visit with the monks, he learned from his servants that his servants would give the monks the food. But then the monks would take the food and go into the city and give the food to some of their personal supporters, and then the supporters would offer the food back. And King Pasanai said, why are they doing that? I'm giving great food. I'm giving better food. No, he said, I'm giving really good food. And why are they doing that? And so the Buddha explained that in the palace, his servants distributed the food without any inner feeling, just following orders, as if they were cleaning out a barn or taking a thief to court. And some of them even thought that the monks were just parasites or even had negative feelings. They lacked faith and had no love. And he said, when anything is given in that spirit, no one could feel comfortable accepting it, even when the meal is of the most delicious food. So he said, in the contrast, in the householders of Anattapindaka and Risaka, another generous woman, they welcomed the monks and regarded them as spiritual friends. 
and a humble meal provided by a friend is worth much more than the most sumptuous meal offered by someone who did not give in the really generous open spirit. So it's really, this is where you see, it's, a, it's about the joy and the purification of heart and mind, not just about giving a lot and being seen as generous. In fact, in another place, the Buddha said, even if a person throws the rinsings of a bowl or a cup into a village pool or pond and does so thinking, may whatever animals live here feed on this, that would be a great source of generosity, of merit. It's that movement of heart and mind. You know, so sometimes, you know, even just you have water you're going to throw out, and if you just pour it on a plant and think, may this be for the benefit of the plant, that's a mental act of generosity, something we're all quite able to do. Once when Sada Upandita was here teaching, there was a monk here teaching with him, Unyanapanika, who was a, a Nepalese monk. And I remember he gave a talk on generosity that I really liked, uh, I mean, because I took notes from it. Oh, I wouldn't remember one word if I didn't take notes, but a long time ago. But he, gave, he talked about the practice of giving as a practice. And he gave kind of six points. So I'll just mention them, because sometimes that might be helpful. Not to make it too rigid, but just the different aspects. So the first, of course, when the, the thought of giving anything arises, giving attention to the motivation, to the volition, right? Really kind of purifying. This is the first and second together. The second is whatever one is given, see and abandon the clinging to it. So that it's not just kind of this casual, oh, here, take it. I have a friend of mine once, uh, he, he used this word, I'd given him something I didn't want. I said, I don't want this. He goes, oh, yeah, I'll take it. Okay, here. You know, so that didn't really feel like an act of generosity. I never gave it another thought. But some years later, he mentioned, he said, that thing, I use it all the time, your act of casual kind of thoughtless generosity. I mean, he wasn't meaning critical. That was an accurate description. It was casual, thoughtless generosity. And so looking at it, Okay, it's more generous than not giving, but it's not really the generosity of just giving attention to the volition. Not, I should be generous, that's not it, but this open. And I heard a Tibetan teacher once saying, you know, practice. There's generosity of mind, of speech, and of body. So maybe, you know, the thought comes up, I'd like to give this. Oh, I just can't. So he said, practice in your mind. Practice giving it in your mind. You know, if I can't even do that, no. Okay, so we just practice there, out of loving kindness, out of generosity, not out of a should. Another Tibetan teacher is take a, t- practice taking a rock and giving it from one hand to the other. <laughs> just practice letting go. It's the act of letting go. You know, we can play with it. Just start to see what holding on and letting go feels like, viscerally and in our mind. Sooner or later, we notice the letting go feels better. But it's not a should. So just, we can practice that. Or another way of thinking is, uh, this is just of the mind. With whatever one does, I, I read this from Geshe Rapton, who is a, the teacher of one of my good friends, Fred von Allman, I mean, he's been dead a long time. So just like a, a generous action of mind is with whatever you're doing, 
turning on the water, making some tea, washing your hands, just thinking with this act, may all beings be free from suffering. That's just an act of generosity of heart and mind. So simple, so simple. Just so many different ways to practice. So with mind, with speech, with body. See and abandon the clinging. And whether that's time or service, it's not just about things. The third one is um, to give when possible. It's not possible here when you're on retreat in silence. But when possible, when it's appropriate, to give face to face. You know, so that's the, the way they do it. And, and, the, and the fourth one is to give mindfully with the mind you know, focus. So we're really collected, attentive to both the motivation and the act of giving. It really gives it a power and a beauty, you know. That's, that, that face-to-face, that's again something I've learned from the way it's done when you're offering to monks and nuns in Asia, where there's, and not just that, to lay people too, it's this very formal thing. And the giving is done with this real sense of appreciation, and the receiving is done with this great dignity this great respect for the whole process that I really find quite ennobling on both sides, as well as joyful. Um, and I remember one time when Upandita was here and he had been, I was on retreat, he'd been talking about, I don't know, wanting to study Christianity and wanting to practice his English. So I remember I got a friend to buy this very simple English book uh, about Jesus' life or something, something like that. And then, I'm shy, giving face to face, you know, it's like there's a sense of self and shyness and what do they think and all this stuff that isn't the happiness of generosity, this whole kind of self-cherishing that's kind of weird. Why is it like that when it's such a joyful thing? So anyway, I had this friend give it and I went on my retreat here and weeks after when the retreat ended and I went to say my goodbye bows, he goes, wait, and he had someone go get that book and he gave it to me. He said, now give it to me face to face. It was really far out, you know? I mean, and I was like a little nurse, but no, and and he, you know, really present in the receiving, very formal, very, and then they say, like a blessing, you know? Like, and even lay people, he gives us some little thing, and they go, may this be a cause for your complete attainment of Nibbana in this lifetime. Imagine you give somebody a little towel, and they say, may this be a cause for your attaining Nibbana in this lifetime. I mean, it's beautiful. We just go, okay, thanks. Or do you have a better one? You know, and, no, maybe you attain the body in this life. Like, try it. It's really a wonderful thing. So this sense of giving with the mind focused on the giving, it ennobles both the giver and the receiver. So another example, with, with lay people, um, someone had given us, uh, had sent money to rebuild some houses in, after the cyclone. And this was some neighbors, really poor neighbors with their own tumble-down houses, came to us and said, there's this elderly couple with this son who's off and doesn't take care of them, and they don't have enough to eat, and their house is falling down. They really, could you help them? So we came, and they were in their 80s, and the woman was almost deaf, is almost deaf, and the man is almost blind. And he can't really work, but she grows, and their house was spicking the house. Well, where they live, spick and span, so clean, so tidy. 
And she grew little plants outside and back, and on the days that she was well enough to walk, she would take these plants to the market to sell, and that was their only income. And it wasn't enough, and neighbors would give them rice and stuff. So, you know, we gave money to, to build a house, which is like not much. It can be done in a day. Then we found out they didn't have enough money for the rent. In Burma, poor people, you, ha you own the house, but you rent the land. And then if you get kicked off, you have to leave you, take the house with you. So they didn't have enough money, and their rent was like a year overdue. The rent, this was like $60 for a year, this rent. So, I mean, that was nothing, right? So we paid that. Then we went back, the neighbors all said, you come back. You know, we went and paid the landlord, came back. And it was just, they were so dignified and elegant, really, but also happy. The guy had this, the guy had this greatest smile, and he had a kind of like, a homemade mandolin kind of thing that he took down and was playing and singing for us. And the wife isn't so smiley, but very serious. And he was doing some kind of dance. It just, it wasn't like, it was just like this appreciation of the whole situation, this great sense of, of happiness and dignity, you know. And this, there's no space, this sense of, oh, the shyness of giving or the shyness of receiving or the saying, oh, I'm not worthy to give or receive. It just, it cuts that mutuality, it cuts the circle. But to give or receive with this dignity and this face-to-face -face presence is really ennobling, and it really strengthens the joy. The fifth is after giving, to continue to be mindful of our motivation. Have you ever had a time when you give and then later you go, oh, so keep on being mindful, you know, oh, yeah, right. Remind yourself when that happens. Ah, you don't want to go there. Re-emerge re yourself into the happiness of the generosity while you did it. That's really quite accessible. And, and this is important, having a clear comprehension of the broader context. Clear comprehension. So in other words, if, if an alcoholic comes and wants help, you give the help you can, but you don't give them $20 to go down to the liquor store and buy more, for example. You know? But it, it's so generosity with intelligence is with everything. And I added the seventh, which is also receiving with the same openness. Because when someone gives and we go, oh, no, I'm not worth you, I have so much more than you. Don't give me anything. Because that's the other thing. Every time you offer something to these people, in, in, in Burma, no matter how poor they are, they're going to come and offer you something back with huge joy and dignity. And not to take it is a lack of generosity. You know, no, no, I'm so much, you know, I have so much more, you don't give me that. It's so, you know, that doesn't work. And it's not happiness producing. So just the last thing I want to say, so there's the happiness of contemplating generosity, there's the happiness of the act of it. And there's the happiness of contemplating our past acts of generosity. This is something we don't do so much in this culture. It's not only generosity, also our wholesome sila. But at times, when you're in a difficult space and you, you, know, you look around and go, well, looking at the flowers isn't doing it for you. Nobody's walking by filled with metta here. The leaves are falling and they're all, you know, brown and dead. I need something to bring some light in. I mean, you know, I can't find one moment of metta. What could there possibly be to brighten the mind and the heart? You could contemplate your past acts of generosity. 
of mind, speech, and body. You have to have at least done one, right? Somewhere. If you haven't, go wash your hands and think, may this act be for the benefit and well-being of all beings everywhere. And then you can contemplate that later. But this is from the Buddha. And it's a wise use of thought, you know, wise use of contemplation. He's talking to a layman, and it's embedded in a sutta. He gives other contemplations, but I'm just going to do the dana one because we're running out of time. I'm going to read really fast. <laughs> so, this is the case where you recollect your own generosity, thinking, it is a gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones, that's all of you if you like it or not, at any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. So just the recollection of generosity wholeheartedly is a moment of purification of heart and mind. And when the mind is not overcome with aversion, delusion, greed, her mind heads straight, her heart heads straight, based in generosity. And when the mind, the heart is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense of the meaning, a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. And in one who is joyful, rapture arises. And one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calm experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Thus, Mahanama, that's the person, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. In other words, no excuse not to. And it makes us happy, so why not? Let's just sit for a moment. 